Welcome to the Hammer and Quill, a Bonhoeffer House podcast exploring the good, true, and beautiful in the lives and vocations of interesting people. This is episode five, an interview with Pete Jim. Welcome, Pete, to the Bonhoeffer House Worldwide Shedquarters in my study here in Radford, Virginia. Welcome to the to the table. Thank you. This is a beautiful space, the shed quarters. It's been too long. It's been too long. It's been too long. Good to have you back. And we're here, here as always, with my co-host, Michael Worrell. What's up, everybody? Hello, Michael. We were just uh, we were just comment, commenting about your beautiful space outside, your retaining wall. Mm. Right, right as we were walking in with Pete. We were talking about my beautiful retaining wall. And you holding it okay, up. Okay, but the thing is, is do we have to talk about like that at, part like of it? Atlas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I wondered how long he was going to hold that pose. There's going <laughs> to be, uh, in demonstrating it, I did hold the pose for quite a while, but not even as long as in real life. Now, if you're listening uh, and wondering what we're talking about, uh, I recently built my first and, and God willing, my last retaining wall. Uh, by myself, and um, which what I figured maybe, out a few things. Maybe you could take a picture and uh, and post. I will. It. Yeah, in the, in the show notes, we'll put a picture of the retaining wall, which right now looks great. It looks great. And if I didn't tell this story, you would think, "What a handy guy!" Yeah, <laughs> he's good at building walls. You're still, you are still a handy guy. Thank yeah. you, thank you. You didn't have to say that, but I appreciate it. So basically, what happened is I built a wall, and then the wall fell because I wasn't backfilling. And and I, I had the wall going back towards the hill, you know, and uh, and and in the lack of backfill, the back backwards tilt of the wall. I was sitting down watching the wall, eating a snack after a very hard day's work, just about to backfill. Actually, I was getting ready to go get the gravel, and and uh, oh. and then I watched as it began to fall. At which point, I ran over and caught it with my hands. <laughs> and this is not a small wall. I mean, it's four <laughs> feet high, and it's probably about twenty feet. Uh, uh, long and uh, I held it for about three minutes while I realized there's nothing I can do. How quickly did it dawn on you? In that, th- like, was it throughout oh, the within, three within, minutes? Within the first like twenty seconds, I was like, "This is gone. This is nothing. I can't <laughs> do this." But I still didn't. I still held on. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe God will do something. <laughs> uh, but no. Um, what he did is he let it fall. Yeah. Uh, uh, so that I could learn humility. So that you could learn the that sometimes labor is in vain. Yeah, uh, uh, everything under the sun. Yeah, without the Lord is in vain. That's good. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> uh, hey, let me ask you guys something. Have you guys been watching the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary? Love it. You have been watching it. Yeah, good man. I haven't. I feel ashamed. Mm, shame. Don't feel ashamed. Oh, I mean, don't feel ashamed. I'm. I'm excited to. You're gonna but, you're gonna like it a yeah. lot. Now, yeah. Michael, you're a young guy. When were you born? Ninety one. Ninety one. So you you actually don't remember anything from the I remember last season, or do you? I remember MJ's wizard days. Mm. But but really that's about it. Oh mm. my gosh. Kobe was Kobe was my great when okay. I was growing up. Yeah. So you really do need to watch. I do. Yeah. Yeah. Because you don't you don't think LeBron's the greatest of all time, do you? Okay, uh, you definitely need to watch. The fact that you waited that long. You can't wait that long. Yeah. I, you know can't. I well, I, I saw y'all's you and Brett's round table. Yeah, we'll put a link to it. Uh Brett Johnson and I do a round table weekly at Valley Bible Church where we answer questions that uh people send in, some of which are really deep and some of which are things like who's the greatest of who's, all time? Who's, who's the, the goat? goat? Yeah. So I th- and we quickly I think answered I would, MJ. Yeah, I think I would say MJ, but but just so that there, you know, it's not as much fun when there's mm. no contrary opinion. Mm-hmm. When there's no, so contrarian. you're just a contrarian. I, I can be. I know. LeBron. <laughs> okay, you're just wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's uh, a Michael. He, poetry in motion. <laughs> yeah, I mean that quote from some fan, right? Yeah, Did you see that? Yep. Yep. Yeah. I yeah, I really do think. He, he just was such a competitor. Not that LeBron's not, but he just would have made himself the best at whatever facet of the game. Like you know, the game has shifted mm-hmm. to yes, he would have been shooting pointer. a lot more three pointers. Yeah, he and he he would he would have 
his dribbling would have, you know, continued to to rise and his three point shooting would have would have risen because he just would have put in the the sweat and and work and But when Larry Bird and Magic say never seen anything like yep. it. Yep. Yeah, people who talk about LeBron having tough competition, it's like, well, did have did you ever hear of Larry Bird? You ever hear of Magic Johnson? And yeah, and just like actually tough. Like mm-hmm. yes, I'm talking about Bill Lambeer. Yeah, like like the game was different. It was yeah. it was yeah. You clothesline people. Oh yeah, and it's not a flagrant. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. MJ all the way. And the, the when, you know, when is episode? Uh, Sunday nights. I think they do two at a time on Sunday nights. Um, and if you're a parent out there, you want to watch this with your kids. Uh, they do a edited version on because you know there's some language. But on ESPN two, you can watch it with the. Hmm. I suppose they bleep it out. I don't know. I watched the. I watched the ESPN one, but you watch. You watch the unedited. I did. Yeah, I watched it with all the swear words. But you guys but don't have a box angel at the house or something like that. that no, I actually that, don't know what a box angel is. You know the thing that intercepts the bad words. Oh no, we don't have a box angel. Yeah. Okay. Nor huh. do we. I don't huh. know if they still make them. And I may not even <laughs> be calling it the right thing. No, but, well, yeah. we'll find that out. <laughs> we will definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah, Box Angel. <laughs> um, no, but the ESPN2 has the edited version. And uh, and I was thinking I might watch it. I might, I might keep my kids up because they don't, they don't even know who Michael Jordan is, really. Mm. Uh, and so... So, so do we, you not want your kids to hear any bad words? Or how does that work for you? This, this feels like a trap. <laughs> 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 My kids have heard some bad words, Pete. Yes, that is true. Um, but I do like to protect them as much as I can. <laughs> Where would you say they primarily... You're the house angel. <laughs> Where would you know they? what? I need, a, I need a box angel that I can carry around with me. Yeah. Put in front of my mouth. Yeah. My own personal box angel. Uh, yeah. That's I, I'm, good. I'm actually oh. just not going to answer. <laughs> well done, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen. Uh, the last dance... ESPN, ESPN two. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things that it's done for me is I went as a as a kid. I completely idolized MJ. You know, uh, so that was my childhood. I grew up in the eighties, nineties, and then when I realized he wasn't a perfect. You know, when you realize that thing that like mm-hmm. your athletes aren't actually maybe even more virtuous than, or or perhaps they're even less virtuous than. Mm-hmm your teacher, right? Yeah. More than likely they are. Surely. Uh, when you find that out, it's kind of like Jordan, for me, I, I was disillusioned. It's like, oh, what a, what a, what a creep. Mm. And, and this series has kind of, it's like a bounce back for me. Huh. It's like, oh, I, I, I appreciate him again. Now I see him not as an idol and also not as a villain uh, or uh, someone who's crushed my childhood dreams. That- <laughs> yeah, but he went through this rising contradiction, like, he was genuinely humble, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't think that was an act at UNC. Mm-hmm. And you kind of see the the, um, the rise of the conflict inside. Yeah, and even the pressures of being, you know, when you're when you're a kid, you don't think about how hard yeah. it would be to be the most famous person in the world, basically. Yeah. yeah. Like, when you travel with the team, you have bodyguards. Yeah. Uh, when I, we, Every time they show him walking through the crowds, it's like, oh, my gosh. I, I, I watched a... It's it probably was, like what it is at, at Cave Spring Baptist Church after Pete, <laughs> after Pete preaches a great yeah. sermon. Most <laughs> uh, most Sundays, but not all. I watched a, a short but really fascinating interview with J.J. Redick where okay. the hosts were, were basically asking him about his time at Duke. And and they got into a little bit about like, what does it do to you as, a, as like an 18-year-old mm. when you've got... I mean, every single game, you've got people like cussing at you, yelling at you, like treating you like you're the villain, like like you're this this terrible person. Like, and and it was really fascinating to hear him talk about, like, yeah, part of what it does is you're like, wait, I, I'm not that guy. Like, I'm I'm not the the bad guy. I'm not I'm not the the arrogant, hyped up, you know, uh, villainous basketball player. But you start to kind of be like, if you're gonna treat me like it, then Maybe I'll just become that, and so hmm. you know I'm I'm I haven't watched the Last Dance yet, but I'd be uh, you know I'd be interested to see where kind of some of those similarities come into play. Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting for you. you should definitely watch it. Oh, I'll jump uh, in. We'll post show notes now. Listen here, here's what if you're tuning in for the first time here at the Hammer and, and Quill. This is a Bonhoeffer House podcast. 
where we are, we're really diving into pursuing, exploring the good, true, and beautiful uh, based on Philippians 4, 8, which encourages us to think about what's true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and worthy of praise. And so we recognize that so much in our, uh, our, our kind of modern Western cultural moment in the news cycle is not good, true, and beautiful. And so, and, and often it's actually malformative, it's shaping us in the wrong ways. And we want to be shaped in the right ways. We, we want to we stop and look at the lives and vocations of people who are serving God uh, in a Philippians 4, 8 kind of way. And so, and, and really in particular, we're focusing on, on work, friendship, and study, which correlate, in our, correlate to uh, the hammer, the house, and the quill, the, the, the kind of practices of the Bonhoeffer house. Uh, and, and so we have... We have Pete Shim with us today, who is, uh, you know, we wanted to have Pete on from the beginning because Pete is a really form, integral part of the formation of the Bonhoeffer House. So we we formed the Bonhoeffer House. Uh, we we co-founded the Bonhoeffer House. I believe it's now about seven years ago, uh, which started when we had coffee at a little coffee shop. It's no longer there. Little Mill Mountain Coffee Shop in Roanoke. Uh, well, actually, it's now moved down the street. Right, down, down the street. And we began a dream, Pete and I did, about uh, pastoral formation, uh, young people being shaped and formed uh, in the context of the local church. I remember you had a, uh, a, a napkin unfolded and was sketching out, like, he was, Pete was drawing, like, here's the church, here's the seminary, here's us, here's this, what, what do you think about this campus ministry? And, and, so, uh, and so ever since then, Pete has been, man, he's like our dean. Right, teaches classes for the Bonhoeffer House on the board of directors, pastoring nearby at Cave Spring Baptist Church, which is also, by the way, right in the same neighborhood that J.J. Reddick grew up, just to tie things together. And so, Pete, welcome. Tell us a little bit about yourself here on the Hammer and Quill. In particular, answer this question for us. Yes. What would be on the back of your baseball card? The back of my baseball card. You know, you I'm, you collected baseball cards growing yeah, up, correct? Yeah. yeah. I would say uh, born 1967. Okay. Um, five, nine and a half. Always wanted to be <laughs> five, ten. So I'd say five, ten would be on the card. On the card, you might even be five, eleven. Five, ten and a half, five, eleven, <laughs> one eighty-five. That's pretty close to accurate. Okay. Um, grew up, born in Philadelphia. And grew up going to the Jersey Shore, uh, moved down into Tampa, Florida area, graduated from Chamberlain High School in Tampa, which, if you know football, you would know is a significant school in Florida. That's where Jay Gruden was quarterback. Wow. And when I found out he was coming to the Redskins, I got excited about what could happen. Yeah. Former. You know, there's, there's, we just want to, I just want to go ahead and tell you not to get too excited when anyone comes to the Redskins. <laughs> just take it from me. It's just uh, it's just a lot of pain at the end of that. It is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, oh. I did catch a pass in a in a in a pickup game from Jay once. That's kind of my claim to fame. Ooh, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I mean, did not I, know that. In my mind, I caught it. I might have dropped it. I don't. <laughs> I, I it doesn't really matter. It, it doesn't. He's not gonna. He's not gonna yeah. confirm or deny. Jay's it. not. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, Steve Spurrier's daughter uh, went to school with her as well. That was fun. So graduated from Chamberlain, went to the mm. University of Georgia, and uh, you're a big, you're big dogs fan. Big dogs fan. How on earth are they not tailback university? Can somebody help me with mm. this? I don't know if you saw that. Who who was voted? I don't even remember the other teams that were voted. Some it, some stupid team yeah. that wasn't Georgia. <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> didn't Alabama make any sense to anybody. Mm. No, it wasn't even Alabama. Really? So, what, who would it be? I don't know. Penn State? Yeah, I mean, may, yeah, I don't remember. But huh. so went to Georgia. That's where I came to faith in Christ. Okay. Um, and once I finished my degree in business uh, risk management there, I ended up going to Atlanta. And uh, that's where I met Vicki. And we were married in nine. This probably be, on, would this be on the back of my baseball card? You got yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. This is exactly. Married in yeah, 1992. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're coming up on 28 years. 28 years. Yeah. You've had yeah. a couple kids? We de- definitely have <laughs> had a couple. Um, yeah. We So we have six boys and two girls. And that is right. Yeah. Mm. Pretty crazy. You and guys you guys come in right at the uh, the legal 
maximum for yeah. COVID. If everybody's ever, at home, yeah. Once, you ever, you, have you told any of your kids not to come home? And you're like, hey, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's we have illegal. one person over here yeah. visiting today. Yeah. And, I have uh, told one of them not to come. But it, it had <laughs> not nothing to do to with COVID. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. T- talk about what's it like to have such a large family. Um, in particular, does it get easier? <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes yeah. I feel like I'm trying to flatten the curve of difficulty of family, you know, children yeah. and home life. Like, yeah. is there, is there a curve where you get over the hump and it's like, oh, okay. You were just mentioning earlier before the podcast that, that y'all just got out of pull-ups. You're right. And you were, you were that was two rejoicing. Years ago, two or three years ago. So, yeah. that, so yeah. if that counts as the curve flattening. Yes. Yes. Eventually <laughs> you stop having, yep, yeah, mm-hmm, yeah. stop having to buy diapers and pull-ups. Yeah, that's a beautiful moment. Yeah. I, the first thing I would want to say is yes, a big family is a blast. Mm. And I think that's by God's design. And it's tons of fun and love, true love is life giving and multiplying Mm. and filled with blessing. Um, This morning um, in our family chat text thread, everybody has devices except for the youngest. The 10 year old does not yet have a device, although he does. He has, he, he, you find out like a Kindle Fire or something. No, he just pirates devices. Uh He's he's figured out how to use Alexa. Mm. I mean, he'll just, he'll call me. He'll call Alexa. you. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. This is, happens why are you kids. calling me? I, yeah. it shows Stop, up as my please. wife's voice. <laughs> you know, my wife's calling me during the workday. I need to pick up. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's Chase. <laughs> one, what, time, what time are we going on a bike ride? I'm like, okay. <laughs> this is, this is Chase who, who switched his own nickname from cheese to Ace. To Ace. That's yeah. right. You can call me That's Ace. Right. It's going down for real. <laughs> That's it. That's it. And what, Hey, by the way, what age did you hand the devices out? 12, 13, 14. Well, it's, it the, just goes down and it down. It goes down yeah. from the first one. Now, the, mm. the first the first two are still resentful. <laughs> <laughs> you made us wait until yeah, we were yeah, 17. Yeah. But but to uh, this morning, just for fun, the um, this is the encouraging part. So in our family chat, uh, just out of the blue, my oldest daughter sends a text around to the whole fam chat of her favorite picture of her sister, the youngest girl mm. in the family. There's two mm-hmm. girls. And just favorite picture, just for fun. And then all of a sudden, the, the phones just start blowing up mm. with everybody. No, this is my favorite picture of her. No, this is my same, of awesome. the same shot. Yeah, it was really sweet. That is and awesome. And so, um, you know, it it is, I think I'm stepping into the really good season of that. Um, but I will say, just a little reality check, it, it's exhausting, you know. I mean, it it is hard. Mm. And mm. so I don't want to romanticize. You should just how many are out you of should the house have you? ten children. You know yeah, it'll that's be God's it'll will be great. for you. Yep. Yeah, and, and they'll all serve the kingdom in your family. And um, I do think the average evangelical family should have more than two point five kids. Mm. Um, at least, at least hit that full third. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Because because if you, if they can, uh, yeah. if they can, then 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 to view children as a blessing. And uh, an extension of life, and yeah, amen. Now, um, uh, how many of yours are out of the house now? Two, two. One is literally on the fringe, and mm. I'm kind of Just I'm on the gentle. outside of the nest. <laughs> come pulling. on, come on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, talk a little bit about about your vocation. Uh, what do you do? Tell tell our listeners about uh, about what you do. Maybe talk about it now, and then I'll, I'll follow up with some how'd you get here questions. But what what are you doing now? So I am the lead pastor at uh, Cave Spring Baptist in um, Roanoke and also teach adjunctively theology and um, Christian life classes um, in a couple different seminary contexts, most of the time Southeastern and Wake Forest. Good. Now, uh, you were once uh, full-time in Southeastern, uh, uh, dean of the college, is that right? Yes. Uh, Talk about your transition from there to pastoral ministry. Is that 10 years ago, 11 years ago? Uh, as far as full-time pastoral ministry. Yeah, well, you can, yeah, be a decade ago. Yeah, yeah. 2009, 2010. Um, yeah, so the transition there, um, I like to talk about as, as trying to consolidate my communities. I, hmm. Because it's hard for a you know, full-time faculty member to have a large family, and professors, you know, don't, professors' income is not huge, hmm. Um, and so often it's the case that we would do an interim, you know, an interim pastorate mm-hmm. where you go and supply, preach or teach and help a church in transition. 
Most so of the time, those would be pretty local to Wake Forest. Within an hour yeah. or two of Wake mm-hmm. Forest. So you're teaching full time and then your family's involved in a local church and then you're doing an interim mm-hmm. to try to kind of make ends meet. And, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, not uncommon. And it's also good vocational alignment in terms of income. Um, and so it's not a bad thing. But for me, uh, I just found myself in the end in like three or four different communities. Mm. That, and if you're going to do life well in a seminary community, uh, in an interim pastoral context, and in your own local church, you're going to establish relationships that you just can't sustain. And so I just thought, man, if, if we're doing this for the next decade and I'm thinking about how to provide for my family, I, I can't keep living in this tension. And so um, one of the things that really uh, helped me was just thinking in terms of consolidating my communities. Mm. And Yeah, that's good. Now, when you think about, um, just for, for listeners who may want to apply that to other, other arenas of life, uh, do you feel like that's a helpful, um, a helpful tool for decision-making about vocation? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think most people try to do too much and want too much too fast anyway, Mm. you know, in terms of success or yeah, money. Start small. Go Go deep. deep. Dream big. Dream big. Dream big. That's (laughs) a little, uh, little theme of the Bonhoeffer house. One of our mantras. That's right. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, I know. So yeah, go ahead. Well, just so for me, I was kind of in that place where, um, when, when the opportunity to teach and preach uh, at Cave Spring became available, I was kind of ripe for, I just can't keep living in three or four different worlds. Yeah. And so, um, in fact, I had already vowed not to do another interim that was more than two hours away. Mm. And Cave Spring was three hours. So it was a long weekend. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, when you were at Southeastern, uh, you know, actually, one of the one of the one of my more favorite memories uh, at your house uh, was, and we've been Michael, Michael, and I've been to your house quite a few times. We appreciate that. Uh, you had uh, Danny Aiken over. Uh, Danny Aiken is the president at Southeastern, and um, man, you do a great Danny Aiken impression. And listen, I promise, <laughs> <laughs> there's 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 literally no way Danny Aiken is listening, right? I mean, he's not listening. He's not listening. He's not listening. He's not. He's not listening to this. So, can you do a quick Danny Aiken impression for us? I feel like you need to get me in the mood. (laughs) Oh man! He told. uh, He told the story at graduation for me about his son when when his son was young, coming into the room, seeing him changing to go on a run, and and putting on his running shorts, and then later, later in the week coming in to Sunday school or something like that and yeah. telling his Sunday school teacher, my daddy doesn't wear any underwear. Yeah. He's crazy. <laughs> Aiken is crazy. He, he, he really is a, he's a great leader. He's a great guy. Uh, he is crazy though. And he knows few boundaries. In fact, here's one of his famous lines. See if I can kind of work myself. Yeah. Into let's see if here. we can do this. I don't give a flying flip. What you think about that? <laughs> Oh, it's so great. Okay, thank you. Do we have we have oh claps on the board, right? Oh, oh yeah, but I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember which one, and I don't want to boo. Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness, that's so great. Uh, hey, how did you know, Pete? Um, how did you know <laughs> that that uh, God wanted you in pastoral ministry? How did you discern that part of your calling? Yeah. So, I was applying for a scholarship at the University of Georgia in risk management and the question on the scholarship was something like, how will you, how will this be a good investment in you? Will you give back to the business community? How will you contribute to society? Those kind of, that kind of question. And uh, really interesting. The Lord just used that to recalibrate my vision for my life. Mm -hmm. That one question. And I just thought, man, am I going to give my life? Is my goal in life going to be to make a million by the time I'm 45 and retires? is that a weighty enough goal in life? Because it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And then when the gospel came alive in me, that goal just started to fade. Mm. And so I started asking myself the question, what am I going to give my life to? And while that was happening, I was being discipled and um, you know, trained in the faith and, and around godly leaders and uh, just being encouraged to give myself fully and freely to 
whatever Christ wanted and whatever call this was on my life. And so I just became open and just kind of put it all out there and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And began to discern uh, a real deep love for scripture and learning how to read it well and, and, and teach it with clarity. And that's kind of the beginning. Mm. That was the beginning for me. Yeah. Mm, that reminds me, uh, Michael, you were involved with crew, uh, campus ministry. I was as well, uh, just for a year in college. It just started my senior year, but, um, actually I had a really similar experience. It was, it was a, it was a, um, a pretty, uh, small thing, all things considered. I was at a, a little, um, life options conference. I don't think they do it anymore, but, uh, Roger Hershey was speaking. Roger Hershey was on staff at Penn State University, Hirsch, and he t- gave this talk about uh, uh, asking that question, what will you give your life to? Will you live? And he kind of drew this long line. Hmm. Right? He said, this is eternity. And put a little, yeah. this is your life. It's a dot. Or, are you yeah. live for the dot of the line? Yeah. And it just got me. I was like, I want to live for the line. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm ready. I'm ready to. Done. I'm ready. I want to live for the line. Now, um, one of the things that we've talked about a lot with the Bonhoeffer House uh, is one of our stated goals, really, is the formation of a new generation of um, church leaders. But in particular, one of the things that we're, we're interested in is uh, past, pastor theologians, uh, in a sense, recapturing a vision for uh, the pastor of the local church to be a kind of um, a resident theologian for, mm-hmm. for his congregation. Uh, and, and, and I, I, I know that we have quite a few pastors listening in. And so, so I'd love to ask you, uh, can you share a little bit more about that from your perspective, Pete, what, it, what makes a pastor a theologian, uh, and why is it important for the health of the church to have, uh, a new generation of pastor theologians? Yeah, good. I think, uh, what makes a pastor theologian is a, a heart that just is deeply passionate about knowing God and knowing him in ways that are increasingly true, accurate, and compelling. And so you're not just hot, a hot heart for Jesus. You're discovering layers mm. of truth and you know, orthodox theology and what the church has trusted in the past, but you're discovering them with a freshness in your own life and context. And um, how, how important is the—you mentioned there the— um, uh, what the church has believed in the past, discovering what the church has believed in the past, orthodox theology. How important is uh, is history and maybe a um, a kind of uh, like where do you how do you how important is it to be uh, kind of generally orthodox or uh, where, where are you looking for for sources of orthodoxy? Can I um, can I hit pause on pause that it pause and, it and come can, yeah, yeah. And let's come right back to it. I I want to also throw on the table it seems like there's a difference between a good Bible teacher and a pastoral theologian. Okay. I just wonder if you guys agree with that because, but early on what I was, what I, and I didn't know this was happening to me. I just wanted to be, I wanted to understand the scriptures and be able to communicate with clarity what they, um, right. what they intended. And in the process of that, I think at some point a good Bible teacher becomes, you know, and I don't want to, I don't want this in any way to sound like there's a two tier thing, you know, like theologians are better than Bible teachers, Yeah, but the best Bible teachers are really theologically oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I've got a book here on my table, The Pastor as Public Theologian. Uh, Kevin Van Hooser writes an introduction in that book. I think it's many contributors, but um, he makes the case that that division between biblical uh, kind of uh, the Bible and theology is, uh, he actually he actually attributes it to Schleiermacher. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. Who's convenient to blame for any problems sure, sure. we have well, now? Yeah, yeah. when in doubt, yeah, it's probably Schleiermacher. Yeah. Uh, but that would have been 18th century, and uh, he calls it the Berlin Wall in in uh, academic theology. That that uh, that now, uh, so so that you have a faithful pastor who thinks, well, my job is to exegete the scriptures. I got to be. I'm the Bible guy, which of course, right? He right. we we should think that we should spin it. We should our nose should be in the Bible, right? But. Then they think of theology as this thing that's done over in the. That's what the academics Academy. do. Yeah. Uh, and what he, what, what Van Hooser is trying to recapture is no. These actually, what we should do is maybe just say this. This isn't a, really a valid dividing line at all. Uh, that when we're in our studies studying the Bible, th- we're, we're studying theologically, but we're also studying theology. Yes. Interesting. 
Interesting. What do you, have you have you considered that dividing line before? I'm sure I think you, I think that's exactly what what we want to say, which is that that wall shouldn't be there, right? Um, and if you're going to interpret Scripture rightly and accurately, you're going to do it in the exegetical tradition of the church, yeah, and that's yeah. you know conciliar orthodoxy, uh, that's Nicene orthodoxy, and it even comes up to today confessional statements today where we feel like we have to bring clarity to. You know, whether it's a question of male, female, yep. gender issues, yep. anthropology, etc. Confessional statements teach us how the Apostles' Creed teaches us how to read the Bible. And so uh, I, I backed into this pastoral theologian thing. I didn't sign up. I didn't go to seminary to sign up and become a pastoral theologian. But what happened to me, um, you know, is a, a, something like what you just described. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So rather than thinking two tiers... Uh, I like, we're really thinking about just integrating what never, what never should have been uh, put, yes. put asunder, what never should have been divided. Yeah, right. I like that King James. You <laughs> I use, I usually say that a lot. Don't you, Mike? Put asunder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I hate it when things get put asunder. I hate uh, too. And hey, so when you say conciliar orthodoxy, just, yeah, this fill is following that in. Up, that's following up my question before. Yeah. Fill that in for question. us. So you're, what you're saying is, is getting back to the tradition of, of the early church councils or even just the, the councils throughout history. Yeah, especially the early ecumenical councils and where where the councils in a united expression defined faith. So right. you know Jude Jude says the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What's that look like? Right. Early on the church is working that out. And often they they are issuing those those statements when there's something that's challenging what that's right. what they think is the the orthodox once and for all faith or, or once delivered. Yeah, exactly. Faith. So the Jesus of the New Testament looks like this. And, right. you know, we just finished the series on the creed. It's been really refreshing. And you would think, how, how could you preach for 14 weeks on the creed? Well, I could have preached for 28 weeks. Mm-hmm. We didn't, I, I kept running out of time. So, um, yeah, so conciliar orthodoxy is, is, is the church's established tradition in which you should read the scriptures faithfully. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that gets to, you brought up, um, even even now we're wrestling with um, and, and producing confessional statements because, as you said, Michael, uh, these these creeds and, and, uh, and confessions, they're not created in a vacuum. Right. They're created because there's some kind of controversy, opposition, question. You know, wait, was Jesus like God or was Jesus God, right? right? So, oh, well, we need to, we need to come together and, and address this. And, and currently our current, our current types of things are maybe more anthropo- anthropological, right? Uh, what is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? Those sorts of things. Right. Uh, excellent. Excellent. So now, now a really related question that we'd like to ask you, Pete, is, um, is maybe help us with how you envision the distinction between uh, pastoral theology and, and maybe public theology. Um, yeah, so maybe just let's let's answer that first. Take a short stab at that. Every local church pastor, I think, should have a vision toward pastoral theology. He should he should be what Scripture calls him to be. He should be an evangelist, a disciple maker, and a pastoral theologian. All those in one. He won't do as mu- he won't do all of them as well equally, equally or equally well, as well. Yeah, but he should have a vision to pursue that. Not every local church pastor, I think, is going to be a public theologian. Uh, I think a public theologian. Um, and, and I know people are making the case for that, but I, I'm not sure how um, doable that is. Sure. Because not every pastor has a God-given platform yeah. that places him into the marketplace of ideas. To be a public theologian, I think you need uh, a way into the marketplace of ideas where you're exchanging with, with other conversation partners of influence what is at stake. So N.T. Wright, for example— um, I think does this reasonably well, right? Yeah. So whether whether we agree with everything he says, right. and he he's he's doing public theology, and he's doing it in a way that's mostly faithful. That it, that we in most of what he's not he's not making arguments in the in the public in the polis in the uh, in the public sphere. He's not making the types of um, controversial theological arguments. He's talking about what. Uh, he's talking about lament in a time when we're wondering what do we do when when people are dying all around us. Right? Yeah, I didn't get an opportunity to write a Time Magazine article. No one asked. Millions you. of people would read about mm. lament. He mm, right. did. So he he's got a, a way yeah. in. Russ Moore has a way in right mm-hmm. now. 
Um, and, you know, Russ is a, I think, a really good example, particularly as a Southern Baptist, of somebody who's winsome, compelling, engaging, uh, and even a little provocative. Uh, and he has, I think, a way into the marketplace of ideas right now. Mm-hmm. But, but very few of us as local church pastors are going to have that, that marketplace platform. And yet I think all of us as local church pastors are called to pursue theology at a level beyond, you know, theology is, is knowing and loving God. I, sure. I, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. So in that sense, I want my 12-year-old son, I don't have a 12-year-old son. Um, <laughs> I mean, I did. You did and you will. And I will. Yeah, yeah. God willing. But yes. I, I want my 13-year-old daughter to mm. be, and she is well on her way to becoming a good theologian, mm. but that is going to look different for her than a, I think there's a unique pastoral theologian uh, vocation yep. for the pastor yep. of a local church than, than, than everybody's a theologian. You, you totally agree, right? Yeah. So uh, so I love my favorite definition of, of theology. William Ames, uh, hundreds of years ago, said living to God or living unto God. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it's such a great great definition. I think I think John Frame kind of picks that up in, in this idea of uh, it's not just thinking right thoughts about God or thinking thoughts after God, but it's, it's living unto him, which involves our, and all those sorts of things. And, and in that mm-hmm. sense, Everyone's a theologian, right? But we're, we are making a case that there's there's a there's room for uh, the shepherd, that, which is pastor is from the word shepherd. The, the shepherd to uh, help 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 uh, the sheep uh, underst- to to live unto God, right? To understand yes. who God is and to yeah. interpret their their you know uh, cultural current realities and their sufferings and so on, their hopes. Um, now, can I ask a couple follow ups here? Do you want to ask one, Mike? Totally, go for it. Well, and, and so one thought is, and even most pastoral theologians probably shouldn't be public theologians. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I I think there's even a whole, a whole language, uh, like a learned language to public theology. And, uh, you're entering into like a, a long going conversation, which is, it's time consuming to actually jump into that, that you know, river of conversation right, that's happening right. in, in the public forum. And so, and I don't think all local church pastors, even good ones, like guys who are respected and, um, you know, leading seminary communities and things. I don't think they're necessarily all, they don't have the disposition to do that well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Some, right. some, some evangelical pastors tend to be a little more fundamentalistic. Sure. And, you know, I'm not sure we want that representation in the marketplace. Sure. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to ask something on the other end of the spectrum, which is just, uh, and I don't, we didn't, we didn't prime this. So I don't, I am just curious to hear y'all's thoughts on, I I feel like as I kind of look out at the, at the cultural landscape and, and, and what kids are growing up in now, there's, there's almost a sense in which, uh, people, people Google <laughs> their theological questions as, as much or more than they go to their pastor. Um, and so I, I don't know that I have a, a particular point in that, but I'm just curious to hear what kind of, what do you think the role of the pastor theologian is going forward hmm. uh, in the church and, and maybe how do we continue to cultivate uh, respect for the pastor theologian or, you know, the importance of the pastor theologian or, uh, yeah, just would would be curious to hear y'all's thoughts. Mm. Yeah, so let me let me throw one thought out. Um, certainly, I don't think that's going anywhere, right? Uh, my kids are gonna are gonna <laughs> they're gonna be more connected to Google more most likely than we are, and and so on. Um, and and so so rather than try to kind of fight against that kind of a hey, don't Google, come to me. Uh, right. I do think what we want to do is 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 what kind of avenues has God, are God ordained and God given where we are able to speak theologically? We're able to, um, to, to, uh, we're given, we're given a kind of invitation to, uh, from our church members and those, those who are not our church members in our, that are better listening. Uh, so maybe the, the sermon in particular on a Sunday morning, what, what an opportunity mm-hmm. people come and they, ex- they sit down and they expect for 40 minutes to just mm-hmm. listen to you. Like, uh, can you imagine that in any other context? Uh, but it still happens. Yeah. 
people not, still do that. Not other than schooling. No, no, no <laughs> yeah. When you're when you're when you're forced to, right? Or right. when you're when you're paying, uh, you know, tuition. Yeah, but right? this is or, a chosen elective. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We're yeah, it's an elective of Bible. Yeah, and theology. So so what a great opportunity. I think that making the most of that time, uh, you know, when we're preparing for a Sunday morning to preach, um, considering that this is this is such a such a blessing to have this uh, passport to to uh, yeah enter in and and can I jump in? Yeah, please yeah, do. So I think somebody who does that really well these days or did for the last 20 years and he's retired now is Tim Keller. Mm. Uh, and Keller was, I think one of the most masterful things about his approach to pastoral ministry, teaching, preaching, engaging this culture is that he would take deep theological concepts and put them on the bottom shelf and then he'd put them on the middle shelf. And then you could also tell he could, yeah. he could work the top shelf. Yeah. And so if you can learn to make solid and deep theological concepts accessible to 12 year olds. Mm. That's where I think that's where we can feel, we can feel much less threatened by Google. No matter who's coming to the pantry, no matter who's coming, they can, they can, can oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm. For sure. That's good. That's good. That's a great question. Um, yeah. Let me follow up with another one. Uh, you mentioned uh, God given platforms. So when you think about public theology for the, in the pastorate, um, some people have dispositions, some people, but some people also have God-given p- platforms. And I wonder, maybe taking this out of the realm of public theology, if you would, and this is, I didn't prep you, prep you for this at all, uh, but I'm curious, uh, if you could speak to the role of ambition in pastoral ministry. So, and let me back that up a little bit by saying, um, you know, Michael, when you said not everybody should be public theologians, my first gut feeling was Amen. There are so many, so many guys that are pursuing a platform that I think, oh, I just, please don't listen to them. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, you know, and, and which really for, for me has more to do with the, the platform pursuit, the, sure. what Eugene Peterson calls careerism mm. in the pastorate, that, that it's when, when you, when people make the pastorate into a stepladder of career, uh, that there's, there's a distortion happening. And yet, how can we be, I think, I think that you would say, Pete, that we, we can and ought to be ambitious. So what does that look like to be ambitious mm. and yet not to be a careerist, not to be humbly ambitious? Mm. Yeah. Is that possible? I don't know. That would make a good book. <laughs> I would, I, that seems like a Tim Keller book. Yeah. The book's out there. Who is yeah. it? It's called Rescuing Ambition or something like yeah, that. It's a really yeah. good, it's a solid book. I don't remember the author, uh, but I think the key is as you know, you're going to agree with this right away, right? It's always about motive. It's always about motive. And so if you, if every year you're freshening up your resume, if every month you're looking for a new platform, if every two years you just have this itch to move and climb the ladder, that's, that's just wrong. Mm. That's not from God. And it's, it's, it's self glory. It's self promotion. It's, you know, if you find yourself positioning yourself in the room or in conversations Ooh. or in, you know, um, meetings to make sure you're talking to the right people. Like, I, I really appreciate the, some of the conversations you and I have had about um, intentionally moving away from the public view mm. a little more, uh, uh, what's the word you've used? Not obscure, um, but... Yeah, I should know. You should know. Um, but anyway, <laughs> underground. I think, I think underground. Yeah, yeah. obscure, hidden. Um, I yeah, don't know. just and and just not just really. Try, I mean, the the key is that it's a God given platform. Yeah. You know, if God makes you for something, and God puts the people around you, and the people around you, I think this is the calling. This is calling, yeah, right? Yeah. If if you're the only person in the church who thinks you're called to preach, <laughs> go there. Come on. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> this, so, this, is, this is like uh, Karen's Karen's worst advice she's ever heard given to a writer from oh last week's gosh, yeah. uh, podcast, which was you should publish that. <laughs> <laughs> worst advice given to a yeah. young man sometimes yeah. is you should preach. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> take the take the low seat so that you can be. It's yeah. almost like yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Someone said that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's incredibly um, ironic that. 
on one hand, we're so committed to the gospel, which promotes humility, which mm-hmm. promotes someone else inviting me. And then we flip around and we're just constantly, we are our own self-promotion agency. Mm. Mm. Uh, what What's the line Willard uses in Spirit of the Disciplines about letting God be your marketing department? Yeah. You know? yeah. And, and I think you know when that's happening mm. and you know when it's not. And only you would know that. P- other people don't know your heart. You know, one of I think one of our first ever Bonhoeffer House classes uh, that that you taught, Pete. You you used the image for us of the the inner PR department. Mm-hmm. Um, just mm-hmm. that that sense of you know when sometimes when you're you're attacked or or when you feel you know kind of pushed down. There's there's that inner inner public relations department inside of you that rises up and and wants to you know, spin your mistake or, or, yeah. or spin. Self-promote. And, yeah. and we lawyer up. We got the, we lawyer up with the, Oh, yeah, that, we have the that, inner lawyer too. That was so it's, sticky. Yeah, like yeah. that, that's, I don't think, I don't think that's ever going to go anywhere for mm. me uh, as far as uh, just really memorable. And uh, I mean, almost gutting like, Oh, I have yeah. never. So here, here's, here's something that might encourage some of our listeners. I've never regretted not sending my resume somewhere. Hmm. You know, yeah. because your friends talk, your friends ask, people are constantly talking about, you know, hey, you'd be good at this, hey, you're interested in this, you want me to send your name here, that kind of stuff. I've never woken up the next morning and regretted, you know what, I'm not sure that's for me, I'm going to hold on that. Mm. Never regretted that, you know. And on the other hand, there have been times when I've made decisions, uh, you know, like that, not, not exactly like we're talking about, but, you know, where earlier on in life where I realized, man, I, I don't think I should have done that. Mm. And thankfully it didn't go anywhere. Mm. Mm. That's good. Yeah. One of the things we were just talking about this, this morning, uh, this idea of ambition. And I wonder, um, we, we what we kind of came around to it, There's a few of us that meet to do some sermon planning, uh, once a week. And we, we came around to, uh, the difference between the ambition to go deep, which we consider to be a good ambition right? Deeper into the community, deeper into the word, deeper in my relationship with the Lord, in my relationship with my family, uh, friendships, those sorts of things, even in love for people, uh, versus the ambition to go um, up, right? The the kind of uh, the resume sending, the positioning. Uh, so do you think that's a helpful paradigm to view yeah. good and bad ambition? I do. I do. I mean, I would add, though, I think it's healthy to be an ambitious person in your vocation. Yeah. Meaning, if you're if you're a writer, you should plan to work hard this year and Just write. Get better. Yeah. yeah. You should get better Just at get better. whatever your vocation is. And um, as a preacher, mm. as a teacher, as a theologian, uh, as a dad, you should be ambitious. The primary thing driving your ambition should be God's glory. Right. Amen. So if your ambition is not deeply fueled by the glory of God, it is going to be distorted at every angle. So I think we, you know, I, I did like, did you find rescuing ambition a minute ago when you were looking? I, I had, I loaned it out. I believe it's Dave Harvey, but I, I'd have to, oh, you know what? I'll find it and we'll put it in the, in the show yeah. notes. Yeah. You got it, it, it may be Dave. It may be Dave Harvey. It, and, and I think what he's trying to do in that book is say ambition's not bad. Of course, God made us. Like, we are creatures of the will. We are creatures of drive and desire. Um, you, ambition can't be a bad thing. Mm. Uh, it almost always is, in a fallen man, a bad thing, right? Yeah. It just easily becomes a bad thing in a fallen context. But uh, ambition in and of itself is not a bad thing. Yeah, good. It, it is Dave Harvey. We'll put the book in the show notes. Now, uh, that idea of uh, the inner PR department that's always at work, always spinning, um, you know, one of the things that we've talked about a lot is um, the value of secrecy as a kind of spiritual discipline, uh, because what secrecy does is it, is it, is it tells the, uh, the inner PR department, shh, <laughs> you know, it kind of, it, it disciplines our own uh, advertising can you know campaigns and so on so and it, and it puts it really puts our uh our 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 pr in the hands of god yeah. yes uh so now pete you have for me as a, as someone who's watched your life for the last 10 years um you have demonstrated 
not just a, a habit of secrecy, but a, a pretty consistent habit of uh, incorporating some key spiritual disciplines in your life. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why do you do that? And, and what, what does that look like for you? Yeah, uh, the main reason I do it is, I guess, way back when, early on in my Christian faith, somebody taught me that disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness is the way you live the Christian life. Mm. And so you're not going to be more like Christ a year from now if you're not working to that end. You, you can't just rest in God's grace, um, and that's that. So uh, that's a misunderstanding. Mm. Uh, and, yeah, I would say that probably early on, it, it's just something that came with the brand of Christianity that I was, mm. that I was you know, discipled in. And, um, and then, and I would also say that the disciplines have helped rescue me from some legalism that... That's interesting. ...would not necessarily be expected. I mean, as it yeah, you know, yeah. So, m- so many people would would kind of push against a, a disciplined life as overly legalistic. But for you, it's helped rescue you from legalism. How so? Yeah, I mean, I think if if you're a type A, if you're a driven leader type who's who's got some perfectionism inside of you that just keeps that won't die, um, the disciplines just will humiliate that. You know, fasting will humiliate that. Sure. Um, and, and if you practice discipline in a community with, of other believers, which is something we really value in the Bonhoeffer house world, Mm. uh, is that we're practicing, we're praying together. We're memorizing scripture together. We're not just memorizing scripture by ourselves. We're, you know, if, if we're, when you do this stuff together, um, it, it, it just, it has, it, it forces perfectionism to leave. I, so I'm, I'm quoting scripture back and forth, rehearsing scripture memory with you. And I have to decide whether or not I'm going to say each time I mess up, Oh, I never do it right the way. I don't know. You know, I, oops, I didn't know. You know, no, just, <laughs> just stop. Yeah. Yeah. Just do it again. Mm. And so in community, as I read the Bible, memorize scripture, pray fast, you guys, you guys become my, my brothers and sisters in Christ become a way to just really check that. Oh, you didn't really expect you were that good anyway, did you? You know? So <laughs> yeah. I think the disciplines surprise me in mm. that way. Mm. Have you experienced that, Jesse? Yeah, yeah. I have experienced that. Uh and I think that I think you you're you're to me you're you're putting your finger on what's what's the most uh what's the most important thing for for Really, to me, it's almost a hinge between where where this could go off into legalism or a, or a kind of pride, yes, or where where it actually does the opposite. It cuts that out, and it's it's the the lived community. The I'm doing this with friends and brothers and my wife and my kids, and and this isn't just me and God. And I'm getting I'm getting better. Look at me. Yeah, because it's, it's not I, just me lifting weights in front of a mirror. Yeah, yeah I do. <laughs> I do think that there is uh, with legalism. I mean, legalism and isolation are really good friends. Yeah. So that. Amen. Yeah. So spiritual disciplines in community, good. Hey, uh, we're going to go to lightning round. Love it. So we end our times these these uh, kind of rolling interviews with a. A, a lightning round where we're going to ask you to answer these questions relatively quickly. All right. So first question. Uh, we talked about Michael Jordan earlier. We, which we talked about the last dance following this, the dream team. Uh, well, well, a kind of a dream team. Yeah. He was on the dream team. Yeah. Uh, who's your dream team of preachers? Whoa. <laughs> now, Michael, you asked. Does that this. mean is it a basketball team or a baseball? Team? We'll go. We'll go basketball. So I was, thinking, I was thinking basketball. And you're thinking living preaching preachers or just in history? You can go wherever, wherever wow. you want to go. You can even you can even go John Chrysostom. Yeah. Oh man, I don't. Yeah, there's so many. How do I do this? How do I get down to five? Let me give you. Let me. Let's go modern era. Okay. Because you know, I mean, I just, just do whatever you totally want. How fine. many audios of Luther have I heard? Sure. So, or Augustine. Yeah. Um, okay, this is the lightning round, so i got to pick up the pace here. Yeah. So I would say, uh, so early on, John MacArthur. Man, I had a Big Mac attack. Johnny early, Mac. Big Mac early attack. Early on, I was <laughs> all so, like, every tape, every CD, every mm. sermon 
for years. You had that tape That was early on. I, yeah, I was going to mm. be John MacArthur Jr. Mm. Um, you know, I just, I, I have sections of his sermons memorized. No question about it. You know, God have mercy on your sin, sick, shriveled up soul. Come to a place like this without a Bible. You know, <laughs> he was saying that to the Southern wow. Baptist Convention back oh. in the 90s. That was a mm. great line. Oh, man. Um, so, yeah, so I loved MacArthur early on. I have since, you know, yeah, I don't listen to MacArthur much these days, but um, Chandler, I love Chandler's mm. ability to communicate. I, I learned from him. He's a really good communicator. Uh, and he's a solid Bible teacher, mm. so, solid gospel, you know, the way he's, the way he finds gospel. So am, I'm not just listing them. I'm not giving the why. I should just be this listing. Just keep just, going. Yeah, you're do, doing great. Just do what you're doing. Okay, it's great. Okay, okay. So uh, Keller for sure okay. has been my mentor. Mm. Like my, yeah. in the last five he years. He doesn't know that though. No, I don't think so. <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Timmy and I. Because <laughs> <laughs> in, yeah. because in that case, he's also been my mentor. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's he has uh, about four or five years ago. I started listening to him mm. more direct, reading his lectures as a in terms of homiletics and preaching. And, yeah. Uh, and just listening to him mm. more consistently, and I've, I've just learning a lot from him. Yeah. Uh, on uh, how to how to bring the gospel to life in any text. Uh, and and just a great communicator, and I think conversationally, in terms of his style, I'm probably more like a Keller conversationally than I would be, say Chandler. Yeah. Um, but so I just you know you, which means friendly reminder: be who mm. God has made you to be as a communicator. You know, don't try to be Russ Moore. Like, yeah, I love Russ Moore. I put I put Russ on the list. I mean, I love listening to Russ. Mm. Um, Russ is one of my uh, friends, brothers, and heroes, and so. Um, I love love what Russ is doing. Um, who else do I like? Yeah, you, you got to? one more. Um, You're okay. I don't know who else do I like to listen to. Mm. Let's just go to the next okay, question. Four. You can you <laughs> can win up, a game I'm with four. Up, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we lost. Scott, we lost Scotty Pippen. Yeah, Scotty's been Scotty's been out with last, an injury. I mean, if they're a dr- if they're a dream team, yeah, that's right. That's so. right. Oh, Adrian Rogers oh. and Jerry Vines. Back in the day, awesome. so back in the day, mm. Jerry Vines and Adrian Rogers, a uh, couple of you know Southern Baptists. Adrian Rogers has like the best preaching voice I've ever heard. Yeah. He was, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe Martin Lloyd Jones with that the Scottish thing, rolling the, R. The thing about Adrian Rogers, and for me, this is always a question of of the. It's not just the the logos. It's the it's the ethos and the pathos mm. all in one package, mm. and if a guy has great great logos and he doesn't have great ethos, and one of the things that I've most respected about Adrian Rogers was he was for real, like he he really had deep integrity, and mm. anybody who knew anybody knew that that guy's the real deal, and. That's just good. Maybe we'll have a few listeners go back. Michael, I see you're 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 raising your eyebrows. Like, I've I've never you've never heard him. You yeah, never go back to an Adrian listen, sermon. Man. Never say it isn't. So go back. He's on the is. dream team. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna have to go listen. Uh, um, all right, all right. Next question: What's the book you've given most as a gift? In recent days, sure. Keller's the gift. Uh, Keller's uh, self forgetfulness. Mm, little book. Yep. Oh, excellent. And, and it's because they're inexpensive and incredibly, incredibly. Great man, it's just a great book. I second that. Good, second. So, so behind so that helpful. would be behind that would be uh, mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's good. C.S. Lewis. Okay, if you had six months off to write, right? Cave Spring Baptist Church says, "Listen, we want you to write a book." What book? Would, and then, which is by, a great idea, by the way. Yeah. Great idea. What book would you write? Can you forward that to somebody? <laughs> I don't know if they're going to get this. If, if Cave Spring is listening. <laughs> Dear church family, if you're listening right now. What wow. would you write? Radio voice. I have been dreaming about a theology of procreation. Mm. You know, sort of a sister book to Russ's Adopted for Life. Yeah. Kind of procreate for life um so theology of procreation sex for life actually has a better ring to probably sell more <laughs> copies but yeah i do either think way, sex fine. for life would go a long way <laughs> yeah good good yeah. i would i would we whatever might wanna, you title we might want to get out whatever here. we title it i would buy it i would read it it would, uh, <laughs> it would draw more more people in yeah, yeah evangelical sure, yeah. evangelicals if we have a if we have a weak spot mm. theologically 
where our, where our theology and practice align, it would be in, in, in procreation. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. Provocative. I want to read that. What's something under $100 that every pastor should own? A Bonhoeffer house sweatshirt. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to have to start selling them on the website yeah, we should, now. We should go <laughs> okay. ahead. You're not. Listen, for $40. You're not. You can get this tremendous sweatshirt. We no, need $50. A, we need a merch tab. We do. You, you know what? We need a merch tab. We'll yeah. do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. Okay. Okay. What about <laughs> under $500? We haven't asked a guest this yet, but under $500, is there anything that a pastor should own? No. Okay. That's I fine. don't know what. And I said, it's not an ex. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you need a good set of AirPods. There it is. Okay. A uh, couple of your hobbies. What do you like to do for fun? I love to do stuff outside. I like mm. to, to build rock fireplaces yeah. that you always backfill your retaining. You resource. Yeah. <laughs> I love, I love, some you have been, flagstone. you've been building a tremendous fire pit. It's an awesome fire pit. My kids excavated and we had a blast. It's, it was a family uh, project. Mm. Family projects are awesome. They are. They are. So Maybe we great. can get a picture of that too. Oh, I have pictures. I'll, yep, awesome. Yep. In the show notes, you'll you'll see. Uh, plus, the fire plus, pit. I loved. I yeah. Just to, I, I like to ride bikes with the boys. Uh, we got the TW two hundred rolling, so that's fun. That's a little mm. dual sport. Uh, just outside stuff. I like to be outside a lot. That's good. Hey, what's the worst advice you regularly hear given to pastors? The worst advice I regularly hear given to pastors. Mm, was I supposed to prep for this? I don't remember this one. Um, mm, I need to think about that. Okay. Do you have some thoughts? Maybe it'll spark something. Oh, I wasn't I wasn't planning to answer my own questions. What's the worst advice you regularly hear given to pastors? Oh, you should start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Boom roasted. <laughs> I can't recover. I can't recover. Oh, just to be work. fair, just to be fair, no one actually said that to me. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, great. Okay. Hey, when is a pastor in his prime? What decade what decade of life? Twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties? Not I would say not before he's fifty. At least fifties. Mm. Mm. There's still hope for us, Michael. A lot yeah. of hope for you. A lot of hope for me. I mean, I think that, I think, I mean, for some guys, maybe it happens at 47, you know, but. But it's not in his 30s. It's not in his 30s. So There's if you're no a guy in, in, in your 30s. If you're a race car driver or an NBA athlete or an NFL player all day long. I mean, 20s, 30s. 20s and 30s. Yeah. But this not the, that's not this business. Yeah, that's right. Uh, when I lose my ability to dunk a basketball, I can still be a good pastor. <laughs> Win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What what was uh I thought the, I thought the free will that you had oh, didn't go that I can't high. Yeah, that's doesn't right. go that I have high. natural limitations. It does not go that high. Natural and yeah. moral. You and yeah. Reed just did a, a podcast on the gospel, gospel underground, underground about TM. The <laughs> about the uh low the low point of uh, 47. 47 is the lowest point uh statistically of happiness, of happiness in, in in I don't know if it's men or just people. But yeah, forty-seven. So if you're on the other side of forty-seven, it's the bell. The curve is going up. So your life gets more uh, enjoyable statistically. So maybe but for me, maybe Pete's oh, saying you've got to uh, you got to get low before you, gotta, you get high. That's right. You got to yep. hit the low point, I'm man. Yeah. of suffering and. and uh, <laughs> hey, the, this is. The, I mean, I can't resist this because we just came out of Second Corinthians four and yeah. sixteen, seventeen, and eighteen, where Paul talks about the accumulation of the weight of glory. Mm. And I do think that not just for disciples, not just for believers, but for shepherds, for for godly leaders, that there's a a growing, accumulating weight of um, of glory value that only comes over time, from one degree to the next. Mm. Hey, share uh, share a couple productivity tips or tricks that you use. You're you are a productive pastor. Um, you are you're. And just, I'm just saying that that's just a statement. Yeah. So what are some tri- tips or tricks that you use to be productive? I did think about this one cause you, you gave yeah. me a heads up on that. Mm. I'll, I'll try to keep it tight. The index card, the Da Vinci notebook and a clear desk and inbox. Ooh. Mm. And when you say clear inbox, do you also mean your email? I mean only my email. Inbox. Only your email. So because I, you showed me a, a screenshot of how your inbox was, and I'm using air quotes here, filled 
with my emails. I had sent like four in a row. Yeah, and but not it was just like, filled. It was overflowing, overflowing with your name. Right, but... <laughs> like cascading I, from one I will tile say to another. that when I saw a picture of his inbox, it was... I was the only emails in it. Wow. It was only four emails. I can I... Can you imagine that? I'm almost there. Wow. But I'm not... I can't... I so, haven't gotten there. So the reason that meant something to me is because I clear daily. Daily clear. Get yeah. down to zero. You so go to sleep with zero. The desktop before you leave the David office. Allen would be so proud of you. Yeah. So it's getting things the done. index card's important. You, can I roll through yeah, these yeah, real yeah, quick? Please do. The index card's important because some uh, a friend of mine who was a exec at a power company in Georgia 25 years ago showed me this, and it just changed my life. It was really helpful. Uh, you see my pocket brief, mm-hmm. you, know, you put the index mm-hmm. card, but it just starts as an index card. So you always have an index card handy. And when you're laying in bed trying to figure out why you can't go to sleep, you just write down, I got the podcast tomorrow. I got to deal with this or whatever it is. And you just write it down and forget about it. Mm. And so the index cards are constantly moving you, you, and you're throwing them away. But you've got, it's your, it's your physical desktop, like, you know, it's your dashboard rather. That's what I'm looking yeah. for. Yeah. It's a dashboard for ideas. And then you can forget about it, clear your head and go to the next one. And on each daily index card, I put my top three things that if nothing else happens today, I have to get done. And when do you do that? First thing in the morning? Yeah, first thing in the morning. Mm. That's so good. The Da Vinci Notebook. Yep, what's that? You you know about this because you, you do it yourself, but the Da Vinci Notebook is just where you do all your thinking. So you don't do your thinking in front of a screen. Uh, if you're prepping a sermon, if you're trying to figure out what the Bonhoeffer House identity is, mm. if you're sorting out what elder's going to do what, wherever you're, wherever you're it's back of the napkin work. Yeah. You know, wherever it's, it's your thinking tablet, but you do, I got a whole stack. I, I'm looking at like yeah, 25. Those, are yours. those yeah. just in the last a couple of years. Yeah. They just kind of run through So them. those. I think those really translate into productivity. Mm. It might not, the average person who doesn't do it might not think that. Excellent. All right. Last, very last question. What's your vision for the next 10 years of the Bonhoeffer house? Now we're not quite 10 years old, but I just thought 10 years is a nice, even number. So yeah. you, you're looking out 10 years from now. What's your, what's your vision? Good. I thought about this. Um, I think it'd be easy to answer in number of churches planted, but I don't think that's the right answer. Um, if 10 years from now we had 10, one house, 10 locations, Ooh. one house, 10 centers, 10 hubs. And I'm saying that because in each hub is a cohort. So Radford's a cohort, Blacksburg, Lord, a cohort. Lord Willing would mm-hmm. be a cohort, Roanoke Valley. Richmond might have the population Richmond. to support Calgary, two cohorts in Richmond. Okay. I don't know, okay. depending on the regional yep. expand, you know, the population. But I think what drives the house is the cohorts. Mm. And so it's, it's, if 10 years from now we had 10 cohorts that wouldn't, if that's not saying 10 years from now we have 10 churches. Sure. It's saying we have 10 places where five to seven, maybe even 10 to 12 guys are in an annual rotation uh, or as you know, we've talked about this in the past, Jesse, it takes two to three years for a cohort to kind of gesta- yeah. go through gestation. And so 10 years from now, if we had 10 cohorts, that would be, in my mind, that'd be amazing. Love that'd, it. That'd be a lot of, uh, a lot of trained pastors. Love it. A lot of trained pastors, a lot of, a lot of pastor, pastor theologians being raised up, a lot of churches relating to each other's friends, which is one of yeah. the things that we love to daydream about. What would it look like? Man, if churches weren't just partnering or uh, yeah. or networking, but were friends, were 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 really walking through life together, supporting uh, even the training of the next generation, I'm I'm in. I'm in. I'm in. You in? I'm totally in. <laughs> Thank you, Pete, for joining us this week. And I want to say, what a fun time talking about pastoral. Theology, Life in the Local Church, the Bonhoeffer House. Thank you for tuning in to the Hammer and Quill Episode 5, an interview with Pete Shim. Tune in again next week. Please subscribe, review us on YouTube. Oh, gosh, I almost did it again. Oh, geez, we're not on YouTube. Review us on iTunes. Throw some five-star reviews our way. Until next time, peace.